Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. <laughs> Don't you ever feel nostalgia? No. My back goes out once in a while. There's a story Lucille Ball told often over the years. It happened long before I Love Lucy made her famous. She was around 17 and living in a boarding house in New York. She was struggling to make it in show business. It wasn't going well, and she was broke. So to eat, Lucy came up with a trick, a kind of low-stakes con. She talked about it on Shirley MacLaine's variety show. I have to admit, I was kind of ingenious. You see, there was this breakfast place. I can't remember the name. There were a lot of them. But they had big round counters, and they gave you orange juice, coffee, and two donuts for 15 cents. Now, most everyone left a nickel tip. And sometimes, praise God, they would leave half a donut. And that's the kind of person I was waiting for. <laughs> and as soon as he put down his nickel, I'd slide onto the stool, pick up the half donut, and say, may I have some more coffee, please? <laughs> I got away with that for months. I didn't eat too much. I found out how to go to Needix and slip in. Lucy told the story so often, it became legend. So much so that, to this day, people visit her grave in upstate New York and leave nickels on her headstone. Lucy's years in New York were hard. She went to audition after audition and got rejected over and over again. She had to hustle just to eat. But Lucille Ball wasn't a quitter. Not by a long shot. She was ambitious, back when women weren't supposed to be. Lucy eventually made her way from New York to Hollywood, where she got roles in 75 movies. Starring Lucille Ball. Go star with Bob Hope. Lucille Ball. Miss Lucille Ball. A lot of small parts, but still 75 movies. Do you happen to know what I did last night? And then, when Lucille Ball turned 40, she had a second act I'm not sure anyone, man or woman, will ever beat. Together with her real-life husband, Desi Arnaz, she created and starred in one of the greatest television sitcoms in history. America's number one television show, I Love Lucy, starring your favorite... The I Love Lucy show was watched by nearly everyone who had a television back in the 1950s. And people are still watching it today, more than 40 million around the world. My eight-year-old daughter Josie is one of them. What happened? I got a Mickey from Ricky. I Love Lucy made Lucille Ball rich and famous and powerful. For the best situation comedy... I love Lucy. It was nothing I ever expected. Maybe Lucy didn't expect to be so famous. She sure was determined to become a star, and she paid a price for that. 
She's suspicious of everyone. They're out to get her. Jesse wanted to be drinking and she wanted to be home. He was sitting there with a bunch of hookers. It was probably close to a breakdown. The more successful Lucy became, the higher the stakes got. Communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I thought I knew who Lucy was. Turns out, I didn't know much at all. I didn't know how hard it was for Lucille Ball to get what she wanted. Not just success and fame, but the things we all want. Family, love, security. And I had no idea just how close she came to losing it all. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 3 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. Each season, we bring you an in-depth story about the movies and the people who make them. This season, the story of how Lucille Ball became the funniest, most recognizable woman in America. Before there was a global village, there was Lucy. Lee is one of the most popular That redhead found a special place in our heart. She really did have more energy coming out of her, but I don't think she was totally in control of it. How did she learn to be funny like that? Nobody else could have gotten away with it. Well, I have a very quick temper. She had heart issues. She was a big smoker. She drank a lot. She really had a sexual presence. No normal human being would ever have hair that color. The great Lucille Ball. <laughs> Call me Lucy. It was the character of Lucy Ricardo that made Lucille Ball famous. <clears throat> Hello, friends. I'm your Vitamita Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? <laughs> That's from a famous episode of I Love Lucy, which I've seen so many times, and it still makes me laugh. It's Lucy's face that delivers. It was just so expressive, and those giant blue eyes. In other episodes, she flings and contorts her body. It was all part of her comedic genius. She was the greatest physical comedian that ever lived. Ricky, this is it. This is, this this is, is it. it. Even Lucille Ball's marriage became famous. Her TV husband, Ricky Ricardo, was played by her real-life husband, Desi Arnaz, a musician from Cuba. I don't think that's very nice, making fun of my Spanish. Why'd you been making fun of my English for 15 years? <laughs> Together, Lucy and Desi created I Love Lucy and the modern sitcom. Desi was the genius businessman, and Lucy his muse. My favorite redhead, my favorite wife. He understood comedy. He understood finance. He understood business, and he was a gambler. He would take chances. Lucille Ball. On TV, their relationship was pretty innocent. They slept in separate beds and squabbled. Will you mind? Real life? That was different. Well, I guess I might as well tell you. They had really great sexual relationship, and they were really in love with each other, and then he starts running around with other women. It just took its toll. And he wasn't around. just wasn't around. That show and that marriage, that's how a lot of people know Lucille Ball. But there's so much more to her career. She was a serious actress. She was one of the first women to be pregnant on TV. She starred on Broadway. She became the first woman to run a major television studio, the first woman to be a star, a real star, as a comedian, making room for women like Carol Burnett. On her way out, she said, kid, if you ever need me for anything, don't hesitate, give me a call. 
Over the next 10 episodes, we're going to share what we've learned about Lucy, and we'll talk to a lot of people along the way. We've also scraped together every bit of tape we could find of Lucy herself oh, the name is so she can tell her own story. You'll hear Lucy in her 30s. The Constitution of the United States must be defended. Middle-aged Lucy. He said, get your own life in order and everything else will fall in place. And a much older Lucy, a voice a little hardened by life and a steady diet of Chesterfield cigarettes. Television was so immediate. It was like all of a sudden, Wow. Lucille Ball's rise to fame, it's really the most improbable of stories. More than just small-town girl makes it big. More like small-town girl becomes cultural icon. We start off in a hometown. You know, the places we all love and can't wait to get away from. For Lucy, that place was in upstate New York. This is episode one, Jamestown. So you're going to find water. There's Kleenex and hand wipes in the back. There are... For 20 years, Lucy Studd has given tours of Jamestown to visitors who want to see where Lucille Ball grew up. She even provides snacks. Okay, and candy. This goes to you guys. Because <laughs> I love chocolate. <laughs> so do I. Studd is 71, but she has the energy of someone half her age. She's wearing a silk scarf with the faces of Lucy and Desi in a giant heart. Straight ahead, i like to point out to you the overpass. It says New York and Chicago. That's because we're the halfway point between New York and Chicago. Jamestown is small, around 30,000 people. It's a tourist spot because it sits on one of the prettiest lakes in the area, Lake Chautauqua. It used to be one of the largest furniture manufacturing hubs in the U.S. Lucy's grandfather, Fred Hunt, worked in the furniture factories. To my right, this is the house that Lucille Ball was born in. Lucy Studd points to a two-story house with beat-up siding and chipped brown paint. The front hedges are a bit of a mess. An American flag hangs out front. It's where Lucille Ball's mother and grandparents lived more than a century ago. They rented an apartment on the second floor. Lucy's mother was Desiree Hunt. Everyone called her Dee Dee. Lucy describes her as having, like, porcelain white skin. Her mother, Dee Dee, had married a young man, a handsome man named Henry Durrell Ball, in 1910. Henry Ball was 22, tall and thin, with the big blue eyes Lucy would inherit. Dee Dee was 17 when she married Henry. Less than a year after their wedding, Dee Dee and Henry had a baby, and Dee Dee gave birth in this house. And Lucy was born in the second story back of the house. Lucy's grandmother delivered her at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on August 6th, 1911. Her grandmother was a midwife, one of the most famous midwives in the area. Her name was Florabelle Orcott Hunt. She was one of five sets of twins. I know which blows my mind. I don't know what I'd do if I had five sets of twins. Let's be clear. Nobody knows what they would do if they had five sets of twins. Dee Dee, Henry, and baby Lucy stayed in Jamestown for about a year before moving to Montana, where Henry found work as an electrical lineman. Lucy adored her father. She talks about when she was a little girl and her dad would toss her in the air and catch her. And she said that gave her a feeling of confidence because she knew he would be there to catch her. In 1914, they moved to a suburb of Detroit so Henry could work at the Michigan State Telephone Company. It was there Henry got sick. 
Unfortunately, Henry came down with the gripe. We know it as typhoid fever. After four weeks, typhoid fever got the better of Henry Ball. He died when he was only 27. Lucy was three and a half at the time. Decades later, she told interviewer David Frost about the day her father died. Well, I remember that I was standing by a window and I wanted to go out and my mother was kind of hysterical and crying and I was annoying her. And a few minutes later, I guess, a picture fell off the wall and a bird flew in the window. That I remember. For the rest of her life, Lucille Ball would be superstitious about birds. Lucy's mother, Dee Dee, was 22 years old, a widow, and five months pregnant. He died when Lucille was uh, three and a half years old and uh, had another baby coming, which is my son, you say. That's Dee Dee at age 79 on Merv Griffin's talk show. I didn't treat it as tough. It was just life. I had a home to go to, which I was very grateful for, and that helped. Dee Dee and Lucy moved back in with her parents in Jamestown. Lucy's little brother was born four months later. Dee Dee named him Freddie after her father, Fred Hunt. Lucy was jealous of her new baby brother and all the attention he got. She missed her father, and her mother was unable to comfort her. Lucy Studd thinks Dee Dee was battling postpartum depression. You know, we didn't know it back then, but boy, I'll tell you, uh, I don't know how you could go through that without having something similar to that. Dee Dee's parents thought some sunshine might help. So Grandpa Hunt scraped together enough money for a train ticket to California, and off Dee Dee went. It was hard on Lucy being separated from her mother. She was only four years old at the time. When Dee Dee returned to Jamestown months later, she started working in a metal factory. And it was there she met a tall Swedish man named Ed Peterson. He was said to be fairly well-read, cut a striking figure, liked to dress in expensive suits. That's Noah Goodling. He's a historian in Jamestown. I think Lucy describes him as an ugly, handsome Swede. Ed also liked to drink. He brewed his own beer at home. He was fun. And given everything Dee Dee had been through, she was ready for some fun. They dated, and in 1918, a month after Lucy turned seven, Dee Dee and Ed got married. Though Ed made it clear he didn't want to be a father. It's a very powerful story that Lucy recounts about the wedding day between Ed and Dee Dee, where Lucy wants another father figure in her life. And... Um, she comes up to Ed on this wedding day and with her, you know, most flirtatious expression says, are you going to be my new daddy? And Ed says, call me Ed. Soon after the wedding, Dee Dee and Ed left Jamestown. They went to Detroit to look for better work. Freddie stayed in Grandpa Hunt's house. Dee Dee worried it would be too much for her parents to care for two young children. So Lucy went to live with Ed's parents across town. Ed's parents were Charles and Sophia Peterson. They were religious, and Grandma Peterson wanted to make sure Lucy stayed on a straight and narrow path. So there were many times where kids were playing outside, and Lucy would have to do chores inside. Lucy was rambunctious, not a good fit with Grandma Peterson's old-world puritanical ways. Lucy was over crazy. That's Cleo Mandicos. She was Lucy's cousin. 
she annoyed Grandma Peterson so much. It was like, sit still. You know, I mean, she was just motion, motion, motion. Lucy didn't have a lot of playmates at the Petersons, but she had her imagination. She had these dolls made out of clothespins. I had beautiful little dolls, but I was taught to make clothes for them. And I had shoe boxes for their houses and their crates. That's Lucy from an interview sometime in the 1960s. It was published in a digital scrapbook. She would create whole worlds for those dolls. I used to welcome a rainy day because I was allowed to play on the back porch in a certain little tiny area. And I know that that was wonderful. I still remember that. I can tell you conversations and see the clothes and the dolls right now. And the kind of day and the way the rain was coming down and the color of the grass and what the flowers did when it rained, how they close up and what the bushes did and how the trees dripped and how they glistened. Lucy guesses she lived with the Petersons for a little over two years, but said it felt like six. It was a little confining. It was a little embarrassing. It was a little hard for a child to understand. Of course it was hard for an eight- or nine-year-old to understand. All Lucy wanted was to be with her family again, to be surrounded by the people she knew, the ones who made her feel safe. It was the beginning of Lucy's long battle with an illness she swore she could never shake, homesickness. You're listening to The Plot Thickens from Turner Classic Movies. We'll be back with more Lucy after this short break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance, an emergency repair, or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When Lucy was 10 years old, she left Grandma Peterson's and moved to Celeron, a small lakeside village just outside of Jamestown. Grandpa Hunt bought a house there. This marks the beginning of the most stable period of Lucy's childhood. When we bought the house, it was in... The house is still in Celeron. It's on what used to be 8th Street. Now it's called Lucy Lane. So my name is Bill Rappaport. My wife and I bought Lucy's childhood home. Um, Bill's a retired professor of computer science. He and his wife, Mary, don't live in the house. They run it like a private museum. Why did we buy it? because my wife is a major Lucy fan. Uh, When my wife was 
recovering from breast cancer surgery and chemotherapy in 1999, what kept her going and kept her spirits up was watching I Love Lucy reruns. She's married to a very luscious redhead. What? <laughs> His wife Mary restored the house to look like it would have in the 1920s. It's not a big house, pretty modest. It's a two-story with blue-gray siding. The windows are trimmed in golden yellow. There's a front porch, too. So come on in, and I usually start the tours in the kitchen. And uh, Fred lived here with his wife, Florabelle, Lucy's grandmother. And they moved the rest of the family in. The entire family, Dee Dee and Ed, Freddie and Lucy, even Lucy's cousin Cleo would eventually move in. There's no doubt Celeron was a special place, especially back then. The family house was just a few blocks from Lake Chautauqua. Well, the lake was 20, about 23 miles long and a mile or two wide in some areas and a half a mile in other areas. And very deep and very cold and very wonderful for muscalunge. I remember that fish. Oh, boy. My grandfather used to even fish through the ice in the wintertime. And we used to do ice skating in the wintertime on the lake. And, of course, we never went to the lake without a cake of soap in our hands in the summertime, which really is a fond memory. I used to hate it, but my grandfather never missed a chance. Of course, that's before we had the bathroom. The village of Celeron was small, about 800 people. But come summer, thousands came by train or trolley, even by steamboat. They came for the Celeron Amusement Park, which was built on the banks of the lake. It was so close to Lucy's house, she could hear the sounds of the amusement park from her front porch. Oh, Celeron Park in the summertime, of course, that was it every single night. Again, Lucy's cousin, Cleo. I don't remember, you know, that we had a lot of money to be spending on rides. It was so much excitement, the lights and the things and the roller coaster going and the Ferris wheel, and you could just watch, and it was exciting. You know, we didn't have to go on. And there was always something going on at the bandstand. We saw the outdoor movies, you know, Perils of Pauline. Lucy loved the Perils of Pauline. It was a silent film that became a serial about a female heroine who puts off marriage for a life of adventure, the kind of life Lucy would spend most of her teenage years searching for. As soon as Lucy was old enough, she spent summers working in Celeron Park, and she hammed it up. I was making hamburgers, and I used to holler, look out, look out, don't step over there, step over here and have a hamburger. Grandpa Hunt was still working in the furniture factory. Dee Dee got a job selling hats at a department store in Jamestown. Lucy remembers watching her mother paying the family bills. They paid for a lot of things on credit, which back then was called paying on time. Oh, Sunday afternoon or something, where she would sit down and go over the little little pieces of bills is all I remember, where she doled out like $1.25 for the insurance and and $4.17 for something else, because everything was on time. All the furniture, we wouldn't have had any if we hadn't bought it on time. We wouldn't have had a refrigerator or a washing machine or anything. Even though Dee Dee's husband, Ed, was living in the house, it was Grandpa Hunt who remained head of the household. 
the real father figure in the family. And Lucy's grandmother, Florabelle, took care of things at home while the other adults went to work. Months after Lucy moved to Celeron, Florabelle got sick, uterine cancer. In the summer of 1922, just before Lucy turned 11, Florabelle Hunt died. She was 55 years old. In the first decade of her life, Lucille Ball lost her father and her grandmother. She was separated from her mother for at least three years, and she lived in eight different places. That's a lot of grief and a lot of change in a young girl's life. After Florabelle died, the kids were on their own after school. Grandpa Hunt, Dee Dee, and Ed, they all worked long hours. Lucy was in charge while the adults were at work. She was bossy. <laughs> That's for sure. That's Lucy's brother, Fred Ball. In 2000, Fred told PBS about their life in Celeron. Lucy kept track of the house and all the cleaning and some of the cooking and so forth. And uh, I was doing whatever she wanted to be done. In the evenings, the front living room became a gathering place for the family, especially in winter. There was a piano. Dee Dee was quite accomplished at the piano. Lucy was inclined, and she got through the school, I think, a saxophone. She would play the saxophone not very well, but at least she'd play it. (laughs) And my grandfather was adept at a mouth organ and the bones. And then the saw, he would take this, put the saw between his legs, and we made music. Lucy hung a sheet in the archway entering the living room. It was a makeshift stage curtain. She would direct Freddie and Cleo in plays. The only thing missing was an audience. On Saturdays, Grandpa Hunt would take Lucy to see vaudeville shows. They were incredibly popular, basically comedy acts with song and dance mixed in. So all I knew is I wanted to be invaudible and I wanted to make people laugh. I certainly didn't want to make them cry, you know. When Lucy was 12, she saw a show she'd remember for the rest of her life. But Grandpa Hunt didn't take her. Her stepdad, Ed Peterson, did. He said, Lucille, I know that you like performing, being in showbiz, and maybe someday you can. I said, ooh, I want to be in vaudeville. And he said, well, I don't know about vaudeville, but he said there are other kinds of show business. And he said show business performers can do magical things. I said, I don't do magic. And he said, no, no. I said, do magical things with words. Her stepfather then explained a job description we don't use anymore. A monologist, someone who entertains by telling stories on stage. And he says, there's a great monologist coming to your school on the Chautauqua circuit. And his name is Julius Tannen. And I want you to see one of the greatest monologists ever. So I thought, mm, sounds pretty dull. Guy telling stories for two hours. Because I wanted to see Vaudible. But I got to see Julius Tannen. And he sat in a chair. He had a table, a pitcher, a glass, one bulb overhead. He was six, six. Well, folks, I've just had a wonderful day. I've been out... Two and a half hours later, a mesmerized auditorium had been crying 
sobbing, laughing hysterically. You could hear a pin drop in some places for 10 minutes at a time. Rather admit it, because honesty is the best policy. He told I don't know how many stories. I can't remember anything he said but the way he did it. And when we got out, my stepfather said, now that is show business. That is magic. And that's what Lucy wanted. She wanted magic. When the plot thickens returns, Lucy falls in love with the baddest bad boy in Jamestown. By the mid-twenties, Lucy had grown into this skinny, long-legged teenager. Her wavy hair was brown then. She had bright blue eyes and an even brighter personality. She was, by all accounts, a handful. She had plenty of friends at the Celeron school. I know she was always the leader of the pack, <laughs> whichever pack she was with at the time. She was active. She played sports, joined clubs, and according to some... She was a little wild. Lucy really loved attention. She would do stunts and tricks and all sorts of things so that people would pay attention to Lucy. That's Jamestown historian Noah Goodling. She would get up to all sorts of antics. She would skip school. She would leave town without warning. She would get involved with some shady characters, drive around town too quickly, steal things. You know, she sounds kind of fun if you ask me, but I, I think that Lucy was probably not always beloved, and people maybe were a little afraid when they saw her, because it's like, what's Lucy going to get up to today? I was a leader of sorts. I know that Dee Dee uh, helped me a great deal there because she had my hair always, uh, I could lead in the hairstyles, for instance, you know, when girls first got boy bobs and wore open galoshes, and a, a great gift that Dee Dee got me was the uh, possum coat, was that Dee Dee, the possum oh, raccoon, the raccoon, raccoon uh, fur coat. Dee Dee was not high style, but she was always in style because she worked at the time and, and bought me nice clothes. I always had nice clothes. The first to have a boy bob, open galoshes, and wear a raccoon fur coat. That's a lot of style for the streets of Jamestown. One summer day at the Celeron Amusement Park, a friend, Irene DeVita, introduced Lucy to her older brother, Johnny. He was short, stocky, and had a fancy car. He was 21 years old. Lucy was 14. So Johnny DeVita was like the prototypical bad boy. Lucy was immediately infatuated. Johnny's father, Louis DeVita, imported olive oil, but he made more money selling bootleg liquor and hanging around illegal gambling halls. His was a small-time operation, but still probably mob-connected. And Johnny was following right along in his, his father's footsteps. He carried a gun. He was involved with the drinking and the bootlegging. He smoked cigars. Uh, pretty much any kind of negative, bad behavior that you can think of. He had it, and he had style to go along with it. He had the expensive suits, and he had the nice stuff. I can't imagine a more appealing target for a young girl who wanted attention and wanted attention on her. 
Johnny DeVito was Lucy's first love, and like many first loves, it was intense and dramatic, full of fury and excitement, and a little danger. I never saw him without a suit and tie. Fran Rosselli is Johnny DeVito's nephew. It was his mother, Irene, who introduced Lucy to Johnny. Uncle John, most of the time, had a carnation in his lapel. I still remember that. He always liked carnations. After Irene died, her son Fran inherited boxes of letters and photographs that Johnny kept. Stuff from Lucy. Stuff the family rarely shared with anyone, especially after Lucy became famous. For the last six months, a little at a time, I've been going through stuff, and I keep finding more stuff as I go along. Fran has Johnny's chauffeur's license. That's Johnny when he was young. He was definitely handsome, kind of like a young Robert De Niro. It was easier just to have a chauffeur's license. It was during Prohibition, you know, so a big Cadillac won't be weighted down as much as some of the others. Weighted down by alcohol. Johnny would pick up booze in Canada or Buffalo and drive it back to Jamestown to sell on the black market. Johnny and Lucy quickly got a reputation in town. The hussy that was going out with the bootlegger and the age difference and everything else. Johnny had influence in Jamestown. Fran says when Johnny entered the ballroom at the Celeron Amusement Park, people stopped to look. Everyone knew who he was. Well, it's like the young girls with these rock singers and everything, you know, except it wasn't one-night stand type thing. It lasted. It lasted all right. Lucy and Johnny dated on and off for the next six years. Well, I wouldn't put them on the floor. Or... Fran has stacks of letters Lucy wrote to Johnny during that time. Where is this one from? Her penmanship was really neat, really precise. She wrote in cursive with a dramatic capital J for Johnny. Now, this sounds like a young girl. It says, <clears throat> have a couple of minutes to spare. And see this is Fran reading a letter Lucy sent to Johnny early in their relationship. What time did you get up? What time did you go to bed? Who did you go out with after I got through? Are you coming to meet me after school? What are you going to do tonight? Did you win anything last night? When are you going to let me shoot crap? How do you feel towards me today? Say, do you ever dream of me? Lucy signed her letters, Lou or Slim, both nicknames Johnny gave her. She called him Doc. Lucy would ride on the front of Johnny's car, daring everyone to look at them, the bootlegger and his pretty young girlfriend. Lucy's need for attention to take up space, it was almost primal. She didn't know then that an audience of millions was in her future. At this point, her only audience was Jamestown, the audience of small towns, the most unforgiving kind. The people of Jamestown judged Lucy for dating Johnny. She got a reputation, and they judged Dee Dee for letting it happen. First thing, Dee Dee didn't have total control over Lucille. <laughs> Lucy's brother, Fred. Lucille was her own person. Cousin Cleo says Dee Dee was worried about Lucy's relationship with Johnny, 
especially since he was running liquor across borders. I think it was known just by everybody that he was running uh, those like bootleg <laughs> thing to Canada and that. And she knew that Lucy, or certainly feared that she did, that she would ride with him. Dee Dee talked to Johnny. She talked to his family. And she talked to Lucy, too. But nothing changed. Lucy was in love. But there was one thing that could distract her from Johnny. Fortunately, that Lucille did have a focus. And she did know she wanted to be a performer. And she did know she wanted to go to Hollywood or New York, someplace exciting. Lucy heard about a drama school in New York City. She pestered Dee Dee to let her go. It must have occurred to Dee Dee that this was a way to get Lucy away from Johnny. On Merv Griffin's talk show, Dee Dee remembered Lucy asking her if she could go to New York. Well, I said, how long do I have to think it over? She said, well, I have to have my tuition there or something. So I said, okay. So I thought it over for two days and told her she could go. Dee Dee did have confidence in Lucille's ambition and energy, and drive. Dee Dee arranged for Lucy to live with a friend of hers, a woman who used to be her hairdresser. I was allowed to go away and stay with friends of the family here in New York City. They lived on Dykeman Street, and I went to the John Murray Anderson Robert Milton Dramatic School. Lucy was 15 when Johnny drove her to Buffalo. There, she boarded a train to New York with $50 sewn into her underwear. The drama school was run by respected theater professionals. It was an ornate building on East 58th Street between Park and Lexington. Lucy felt like a foreigner in this world. I was taking eccentric dancing and (laughs) an elocution. That's what they called it. Lucy talked about it years later on The Tonight Show. I was terrified of New York and terrified of people and crowds and a whole bunch of newcomers, you know. Right out of second year high. Lucy was especially intimidated by a classmate at the school. Her name was Ruth Elizabeth Davis, known to everyone as Betty Davis. I don't want people to like me. Nothing pleases me more than when they don't like me. She was the star pupil. Lucy was mesmerized by her and so envious. Of course, Betty Davis later became a defining figure of classic Hollywood. When it came time to give a dramatic reading, Lucy's classmates read Shakespeare. Lucy chose an excerpt from Julius Tannen, the monologist who inspired her back in Jamestown. Nothing she did fit in. After six weeks, one of the heads of the school wrote to Dee Dee. And they sent a letter to my mother saying she was wasting her money, and she she was. I, believe it or not, was reticent and shy and never opened my mouth and wouldn't uh, perform at all. And uh, they sent me home. The letter said Lucy didn't have what it takes to be an actress. She had been so homesick, part of her was relieved. But she had to face the people of Jamestown. Dee Dee was criticized for allowing her 15-year-old daughter to go to New York. Merv Griffin asked Dee Dee about it. What did the town of uh, Jamestown, New York think? (laughs) You don't really want to hear that. Were they really horrified? (laughs) They sure were. 
And do they really almost ostracize you for doing that? Absolutely. That's the one. They see me coming down the street, they turn their head the other way. Lucy resumed her life as a high school teenager, walking right back into Johnny's arms. She threw herself into school activities. She was popular and in love. The embarrassment of New York started to fade. Things were going well, a return to normal. But then, the summer Lucy turned 16, something horrible happened. Something that would destroy her family. So this is the backyard. The the property goes all the way to the next street there. Bill Rappaport is standing in the backyard of Lucy's childhood home in Celeron. The garage was built in the 1940s. It, it was not far. The yard takes up three additional lots behind the house. It's a long open field, one that in the 1920s held lilac bushes and a hen house. And this was mostly a vegetable garden. It was in this backyard on the July 4th weekend in 1927 that everything changed. Cleo was eight, and Lucy's younger brother, Fred, was 12. That July 4th weekend, Fred wanted to practice shooting a rifle at tin can targets in the backyard. We, under Grandpa's supervision, had a little rifle practice, a a 22 rifle practice in the backyard. Grandpa Hunt actually didn't want to have target practice that day, but he adored his grandson, called him Fritzy Boy. Fred pleaded with him. So, Grandpa, you'll be with us, and, you know, you load the gun, and just, of course, Grandpa will do anything Fred, anyhow. Fred had a friend with him, a young girl named Johanna Ottinger. She was somebody I knew from my work in Selron Park. And she came up, and Grandpa was there, and we were shooting the rifle. And Cleo was there, and a little neighbor next door was there. They were sitting on the ground. The little neighbor boy was eight-year-old Warner Erickson. He lived in the house next door. Warner was my friend. He was my age, and Warner and I were playmates together. Cleo remembers Grandpa Hunt setting the rules for target practice. He would load the gun before anyone took a shot. Cleo and Warner were instructed to sit on the ground where they could watch, but stay out of harm's way. Grandpa loaded the gun and handed it to Fred. He took his shot. Then it was Johanna Ottinger's turn. And the girl has the gun, and she's sighting the target. Johanna holds the gun up to her eye. In time, Warmer's mother, who was very strict, she looks out her window, and she can see us in the yard, and she yells, Warner! Whenever Warner's mother called, he jumped to attention. Warner whispered to Cleo, I gotta go. Warner darted toward home. And my kids, Warner, his mother, he's going to duck under the gun, and it shoots. At the same moment, Johanna Ottinger pulled the trigger. The bullet lodged in Warner's back. He just fell, sprawled on the ground, and he yelled, I'm shot, I'm shot. Of course, Grandpa, denial, 
No, you're not. You're not. Not. But then Grandpa Hunt saw the blood on Warner's shirt. Cleo remembers her grandfather running inside to call an ambulance. Then he picked Warner up and carried him to the house next door, where his mother, Mrs. Erickson, was waiting. And she began writing, (coughs) writing, and you killed my son, you killed my son. It was a terrible accident. The security Lucy felt in that little house by the lake, in the shadow of an amusement park, it shattered that summer afternoon. She would spend the rest of her life trying to get it back. Next time on The Plot Thickens, Lucy and her family face the aftermath of the shooting. That accident changed our lives entirely. And Lucy goes to New York again, and this time, the big city nearly breaks her. So I stopped, and I turned the other way, and I went toward Fifth Avenue, and I remember saying, I've got to kill myself. I've got to die. I can't tell anybody at home what's happened to me, so I tried to figure how I'd do it. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editor and creative consultant is Joanne Ferrion. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris and his exceptional ears. Script writing by Angela Carone, Yako Friedman, Dale Maharaj, Maya Croft, and Joanne Varian. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. Associate production from Josh Lash. Additional editing and sound design by Paul Robert Mounsey and Heather Frankel. Additional script editing by Brian Erstadt and Susan White. James Sheridan is our researcher, fact checker, and resident Lucy expert. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Jordan Bogie, Bailey Tyler, Allison Fior, Julie Beton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Wendy Gardner, Taryn Jacobs, Diana Bosch, and the entire TCM marketing team. Thank you to Dotson Raider, whose interview with Lucy is heard throughout this podcast. Other Lucille Ball clips come courtesy of the Paley Center for Media. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. TCM's general manager is Pola Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Lucille Ball's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.